hospitality. We're called to be in the world, but not of it. But where in begins and of ends is not a small or easy question sometimes. From the outside, trusting God to provide and then going to work and earning money to pay for our expenses looks very similar to not trusting God and then going to work to make money to pay for our expenses. So what is it that we're supposed to have or to do to overcome the world somehow? What does that mean? What's different about being in rather than of? And today's passage is about that. John's telling us about how knowing and believing in Jesus is the only way out of being caught in the fear of this world and the things that it demands of us. Jesus is the only alternative to worldliness, to which all other religions and creeds are ultimately just variations on one theme. Everyone else says, what you do now is all that matters. Jesus says, he's already done everything that matters. There's nothing left in this world that can threaten what's going to happen in the world to come, which is infinitely more valuable and significant than this one. And John identifies three ways in this passage that we should see our lives change, that we're not of the world anymore, where to love fearlessly in the face of this world. We are to love unreservedly before our brothers and sisters. And we are to love responsively in light of the fact that God has loved us first. Love fearlessly, unreservedly, responsively. And we'll see those come out as we move through the passage. Now, I'll just remind us as we go through, back in verses 17 and 18, John wrote this. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Fear and love, we're given these as two motivations for living in this world. Fear, that is to say, fear that something bad is going to happen to us if we do something wrong. And love, which the previous passage, that is to say, last week's sermon, um, mentioned this about God. It's the fullness of God. In fact, John goes so far as to say that God is love. And that abiding in love is abiding in God. And abiding in God is abiding in love. So now John's telling us how that love that we are to abide in can become complete. Since love chases out fear, then someone who is filled with this love of God in this world will find they are like Jesus in this world. Jesus' life being fearless, utterly reliant on God for his providence, confident in God's plan at all times, even when that plan involved terrible suffering up until including death. All this because of his loving devotion to his Father. So therefore, love drives out fear. Of course, this isn't to say that a believer doesn't fear things in this world as an instinct, but they are not ruled over by that fear. It doesn't make the decision for them. They feel it and move past it. Jesus, we know, in the garden before his crucifixion, was in such dread of the things to come that he sweat drops of blood in anticipation of it. I think we can reasonably say that's an expression of fear. 
But it was the love for his father and not his fear of the suffering that dictated his action to come. And that's why John is able to imply here about Christ's fearlessness and how we should be like him in that. And we're told here that the love that we have for God can conquer all the fears that we might have in this world. And if that is the case, if we have our priorities and dreams and hopes reshaped by our love for God so that we aren't ruled by our fear of our failures, then we can know that we'll be welcomed into heaven on that day of judgment. And that love can be made complete by driving out that final fear. Am I saved? What's happening after death? Am I really getting into heaven? John says, you can have confidence if you're able to love fearlessly in this world. Then we move on to verses 19 through 21, and we're given some explanation as to how we're supposed to get this kind of love into our lives. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not know, sorry, whoever does not love their brother or sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Our capacity to love one another is a response to God first loving us. We are able to love one another and God himself because God first extended his love which changes lives and hearts and empowers sinners to love one another truly and completely. And again, John's painting in broad strokes here so we mustn't mistake him as if he's saying more than he's writing. This isn't to say that anyone who displays love to another knows God. It's also not to say that those who do not know God are incapable of loving one another, particularly their siblings. You don't have to look very far to encounter folks who have no religious persuasion, but nonetheless love each other. Our capacity to love one another, our families, and even people who infuriate us sometimes, often they're the same lot, is a gift from God extended to all mankind not just those who have been presently saved. But the family that John is talking about and writing to is our church family, our kingdom family. And this is a matter for people in the church who are hating one another. And John says that's pretty good evidence that those people don't really love God like they claim they do. See, we love in our actions. And so, in that way, it's much easier to love people that we see here and now because we can behave lovingly towards them. For example, God will never have a flat tire and have to call me up because he doesn't know how to change it. He'll never really need to talk to someone because he's in a dark place right now. And he'll certainly never wrong me and need me to forgive him. God isn't like a fellow sinner, and so... We don't have anything he needs, and he needs nothing from us, but we've been commanded to love one another, and more specifically, to show special devotion to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the day of judgment, separating the sheep from the goats, and the hour when his servants are being welcomed into the kingdom, and the king will bless them for the things they've done for him. And the servants reply in verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? 
The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of these, one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So God has given us a way to love him by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, to act lovingly towards him in them. Living and acting in love to our kingdom family is how we live out both the command to love God and to love one another. Therefore, if someone does not love their brothers and sisters, and our capacity to love our brothers and sisters begins with God, then that someone cannot know God and has reason to fear judgment. Finally, we move into chapter five, and John tells us in these verses the reverse of what he told us. In verses one and two, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. So how do you love God? You love your brothers and sisters who are the children of God. How do you love your brothers and sisters who are the children of God? By loving God. They support one another. And furthermore, by keeping his commands in verses three to five. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We love God by following his commands. The commands are easy because everything that might make them hard comes from devotion to something else in the world. And if you're born of God, you've overcome the world through the faith God has established in your heart. Who overcomes the world? Only the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. John comes full circle, starting with teaching about living fearlessly in this world, then works through these proofs and finally tells us how that world is overcome. So we have three checks. Are you battered by fear of the world? You shouldn't be if your life is defined by loving one another. Are you hating one another? You shouldn't be if loving God is what you're about and if you're obeying his commands. Are you unable to obey God's commands? Then maybe you haven't overcome the world. And to overcome the world, you'd need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Or you can read it the other way around as a kind of a roadmap out of fear. First, God must love you. And God displayed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and rose again with the promise of eternal life. And once we turn to him in gratitude and love, then what comes naturally, not automatically, but naturally, is to love one another. And once you've really begun to love one another, all the other stuff in the world that might have received your love becomes smaller and you gain a new eternal perspective and it can't command you in the way that it used to. This passage is particularly relevant because essentially it paints a picture of how we are supposed to live in this world. This is the post saving moment Christian. This is what the Christian life is supposed to be like, defined by love in these ways. 
But the truth is that the world is right here in front of our eyes. And the day of judgment is very far off in the future, or perhaps just tomorrow, but either way, we can't see it. And like it's easier to love people because you can see them than to love God because you cannot see him, it's much easier to live for the world that we can see than for the world to come that we cannot. It's our responsibility then as believers to continue to take account of the reason we are living and the one that we're living for. And when fear creeps in, fear that we might not get the job that we wanted or fear that we might not make the money to make it through this week or fear that we may die before we feel fulfilled in this life, we must come back to that perfect love and let it drive out that fear. Thomas Sowell is an American economist and author and he has a particular phrasing when talking about people's motivations. He talks about horizons, and I like that as a particularly apt analogy. See, a horizon is the furthest that one can see. It's the skyline, it defines the limit of the world that we operate in. Now we know if we stand on the roof of this building and look around, we'll see a ring of trees, because this is suburban Southside. But the world doesn't actually drop up after those trees, we know that, we know that beyond those trees somewhere there are mountains and skyscrapers and ocean and beach. And if you were to keep going and going, you'd lap around the world and end up behind where you started. We're aware of that, but it's beyond our horizon. And while our horizon is a ring of one or two-story houses and infested with galah trees, for all intents and purposes, this is our world while we're here. And if you work in the city, for example, and you're surrounded by sandstone and glass all day, it's very little comfort that there may be a shining beach with golden sand over that way somewhere. Your world is in that glass and sandstone. Our physical horizons define the physical world that we operate in. And likewise, there's a kind of temporal horizon, a time horizon or decision horizon that we don't really think about terribly often. Sol uses the term in reference to economic decisions, but since this isn't an economic lecture, I think we'll find it's actually applicable to just about all the decisions that we make. For example, after a certain age, children and young people understand that they are going to grow up. Usually they want to grow up into either an exact replica of or the exact opposite of an older sibling. And they get it, and they'll talk about what they want to be when they grow up, be a cop or an astronaut or a teacher or what have you. But these dreams and ideas that they have are beyond their horizon. They can't actually grasp what it is to get there and do that. And you know because you can explain up and down and left and right that they must work now for success later. Being any of those things means they have to work hard now. And your child will agree with you if you explain this to them, but not enough to change their actions. Their horizon, their world is just too small. It's a couple of days ahead. Decisions past that are too abstract for them to grasp. So parents are forced to resort to more immediate threats and promises. If you don't do your homework, you're grounded this weekend. If you don't clean your room, no allowance for you. Or you can go the positive route. Mow the lawn and I'll give you five bucks. The fact that regularly doing homework and chores is really done to teach skills and discipline is beyond that child's horizon. The fact that the lawn gets mowed is a side effect, 
But the long-term benefits are too far, too abstract, too alien for a young person to grasp. It's outside of their horizon. And how desperately the pediatric dietitians have worked diligently over the years, reinventing, drawing new charts, trying to get children to appreciate something like nutrition, for example. So many five food group charts or colorful pyramids or dancing cartoon food products. Is there a single kid in the world who really saw this stuff and then went, crikey, I'm not getting my five and two. I'm 8% more likely to develop polyps when I'm 44. Doesn't it always boil down to eat your vegetables, get ice cream? I remember these Wheat Bix commercials being crushed by the rise of super sugar cereals back in my childhood. Pumping out these Aussie kids or Wheat Bix kids ads and campaigns, so desperate to get something healthy into kids that they were appealing to their patriotic duty. If you're not eating Wheat Bix, you're not really Australian. <laughs> they're not appealing to kids, they're appealing to the parents with all this talk of fiber and calcium or whatever. Meanwhile, Toucan Salmon needs to be on the TV for four seconds and I'm basically sold. It's sugar, it's colorful, eat it. Kids like delicious, colorful things because they can have those things right now within their horizon. And as kids become adults, their horizon grows and becomes broader and more encompassing. They're able to handle more stuff. At some point, they'll become responsible for paying their own rent or their mortgage and their horizon stretches to include a fortnight pay cycle. The most defining feature of that life is to successfully keep and support that home to try and make it more comfortable as you can, and then, once you get a little financial freedom, to have as much fun and success as you can in that life before you die. Now the adult who was once that kid who thought that sitting through a church service takes forever, is now equipped to start thinking about lifelong objectives. Should I refinance my house? Can I retire while I'm young enough to travel and do the things that I always wanted to do? Should I pursue my dream job and live within narrow means or get a more lucrative job and save my dreams for the weekend? Death is now on the horizon. I need to make my life count or be remembered or do something meaningful with my life. Then those once children have children of their own and everything changes again and suddenly the horizon slips back beyond that death into the life of their child. And now you'll willingly, not happily, but willingly, sacrifice the things that you thought were the purpose of living to ensure a better life for that child. That's a deeper and further horizon again. You'll take worse jobs to afford houses near better schools, fewer vacations, considerably less opportunity for let's say romance, because that stuff just doesn't matter as much in light of the bigger picture anymore, now that you can appreciate that bigger picture within your horizon. Because you knew it was going to happen, but the reality couldn't really sink in until you were there. And then it'll happen again when grandchildren arrive and as old age becomes more firmly entrenched. We all have these horizons and they're shaped and limited by our circumstances. People in a lower class background tend to have shorter horizons because they're used to living from check to check. Is it any wonder why low-income persons then are more likely to eat nutritionally poor food or smoke cigarettes and value their free time immensely? 
Vitamin deficiencies and lung cancer and second jobs to establish savings are simply outside of their horizon. And is it any wonder that people from a more high-income background are more likely to resent smokers, to bounce around looking for meaningful social political causes and to have insufferably strong opinions about stuff that you can't possibly care about? To say nothing of what it's like for someone who's, say, for example, a drug addict, whose horizon gets crushed so small that it's everything that they can make a decision in is the distance between now and the next hit, and they will literally rob their own parents to make sure that happens. Our time horizon, this decision horizon, defines the world in which we make our choices. And without God, all those choices are wrong. Fun and legacy and fitness and adventure and social progress, any of these things can become the thing we are living for. And the fear that we won't successfully reach that goal, whether it's a bowl of Fruit Loops or educated grandchildren, will drive out appreciation for what happens after that thing. But the horizon that Jesus invites us and instructs us and indeed demands us to recognize and consider is beyond any of these things. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Our horizon is meant not to be death, not the insured welfare of our grandkids, not the progress of mankind into a better tomorrow. Our horizon is judgment day. The day in which this world is blasted clean of all the petty ambitions that we might once have had. And each of us stand to account before the throne of God. On that day, how actively we campaign for the preservation of a particular rainforest or how financially well-off we left our children will not matter. How much we donated to our pet charity will not matter. All those things with the world will be gone. Ashes and memory. What will matter on that day is if we loved God. John's letter here gives us these three checkpoints, three markers that are here to hold up against ourselves. And if we can say yes to each of them, then we need to have no concern about that day. When we reach that final horizon. You can have confidence because we love responsively to God, unreservedly with our kingdom family, and fearlessly in the face of a world that we are part of, but to which we do not belong. Christ came to deliver us from our sins and promise us eternal life following him. That puts us apart. Apart from a world full of people who are trying to knock on enough doors or do enough good or blow themselves up on the right people to win God's favor. It sets us apart from people who would discard all these notions and set up for themselves their own rules about what it means to matter and just live life how they want. These are just brands of purpose and happiness that are vulnerable to change and poverty and illness. And the fear of being stopped by those things can cripple those lives. And we'll be with them until the day they die. Our God says he's in control. Life will have disappointments, but love him, love one another. Crave justice, show mercy, walk humbly with the Lord. There's no benchmark of righteousness to hit, no small amount or large amount of righteousness necessary.
No possibility of failure because it's all tied up in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our faith. And he's done it all. That's real freedom. Being secure in the love of God means that we don't have to worry about our futures. We can love fearlessly and unreservedly and responsibly. Everything that happens here is part of the fated plan of God. Everything that happens after is a paradise that we're promised because God chose to love us. Let's live fearlessly in the promises of God, in the world that we've overcome through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you loved us first. We are grateful. You made it possible to have assurance in you. And you've made us free to love one another unreservedly. So help us do that, Lord. Protect us from the instinct to hate as we instead respond to the love you showed us through your Son. And may that love guide us in a life full of challenges, but free of fear. As we look forward to that day, we stand before you in confidence afforded to us by your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.